0: Well Chris, it is uh, uh we're all snowed in here in Nashville. What's it like snow in Nashville? You know, we don't have like plows and salt trucks and all that kind of stuff, so we got you know we got four or five inches. It's pretty. it's nice. If you are in this area though, where you just like weather, there's a great Twitter account worth following Nashville severe weather, right? So the handle is nash severe w x. And uh, they do a great job reporting the weather, but man, they're funny. Because everybody's want to know when, when's it going to start, is it going to snow, you know, what's the prediction, you know, that kind of thing. And so they sent out a tweet yesterday evening, and it says, for now the timing is 6 to 8 a.m. for the beginning of flakes. Do not fall for the trap of waking up and being like, oh, we're good, I'm going to motor over to the local choke and puke for a steak omelet, and then end up with your Trans Am in the local ditch.
1: Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts.
0: Welcome to Touchpoint. Welcome to episode number 258. Reed Smith, that is Chris Boyer.
2: Hello, Reed. I'm out here uh, scraping the, the ice off of my windshields of my car today. Demissaling your vehicle? Demissaling the vehicle, exactly. <laughs> I just like watching
0: kids across the street try to shovel the driveway with a push broom, but we'll move on from weather talk. Thanks again, everybody, for uh, joining us. Uh, we certainly appreciate it. We're well into the new year. We're well into 2022 at this point, and uh, appreciate you following along for yet another year. Like we mentioned last week, we're easing up on the end of year five. You know, we're not on a true calendar year, but we're about to start year six here in February. So we're uh, we're just a couple of these away. And certainly appreciate all the support. If you uh, would like to know more about us, about this show, about the episode you're listening to, you can do so over at touchpoint.health. While you're there, you'll notice there are other shows, other show hosts, other topics, all that kind of fun stuff. Show them some love, click around, see you might find something that you really enjoy there. If you'd like a little taste of what some of those sound like, uh, we did a best of uh, just a couple of weeks ago that you can check out and hear a little bit from some of our newer shows. And uh, while you're over at the website, you'll notice the TPS report. You'll see it listed up there in the top navigation. Name, email address, and you will start getting a weekly email from us. That's all you'll get, just a weekly email, a few articles to start off, kick off your week. Love to hear from you, connect with us, Twitter, LinkedIn, all that kind of fun stuff. Rate, review, subscribe. We certainly appreciate it. Uh, we'll take a quick pause here while you do all those various things and uh, be back with today's show in just one minute. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors
2: sure is. And read. consider this, 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating.
0: Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty.
2: And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you.
0: All right, Chris, so we're going to talk a little bit today about a topic that's become very popular. Over the last twenty months or so, uh, which is kind of virtual telehealth, kind of emerging technologies, but kind of the way care has evolved and changed. And I, you know what we're talking about today certainly is applicable to a lot of things in our industry. Although we're specifically talking about telehealth
2: today, right? And telehealth, we've mentioned it a couple of times before in our show, but second episode of the year, we're we're right into it. We're talking about it.
0: We're going to touch on a couple of articles today, and then we'll get into the interview here in just a little bit, which I think is uh, which is fascinating. You're really going to enjoy. First one we're going to talk about is an article that came out right at the beginning of this year, just a couple of days into this year, from our friends over at Fast Company. The name of the article is, The Telehealth Bubble Has Burst, Time to Figure Out What's Next.
2: Wait, what? The Telehealth Bubble Burst?
0: Yep. Everybody give up. It's over. <laughs>
2: Oh, my move gosh. On.
0: Just move on. It's a really interesting picture, and you'll hear some of the quotes in here about where telehealth stands. Mm. And so they start off and they talk a lot about the fact that certainly when, when we locked down – Man, I remember those early days. You'd look outside and it was like, man, there's somebody on the sidewalk out there. They're a little yeah. close to the house, you know. Kind of right. I mean, it was, I mean, you just didn't, I mean, like literally didn't go anywhere. And so it became really important. And they're talking here about the fact that technology like video calls and things like that were how people connected for, for medical care and even some COVID
2: testing before there was testing infrastructure in place, right? Yeah, they did like pre-screening. They will talk to you before you come into the office. You know, not surprisingly, every hospital that I knew started implementing these robust telehealth solutions. They really did.
0: And it, it's really fascinating because you know, we were doing stuff on Teams and Zoom and I, just anything, mm-hmm. just anything, right? Right. All those companies became the most popular thing in the world. I mean, you remember when like the stock prices for like Zoom and WebEx, and all, I mean, it was like through the roof, you know, oh, so yeah. all of a sudden everything just went bananas, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: This was like the, you know, the next big thing, even though it'd been around a while, we all of a sudden had adoption like never before. Well, turns out people like to go see their doctor. So people are getting out of their houses, they're going back to the doctor's offices. And now we've seen those stocks come back down.
2: I'll share some of the, the interesting stock prices, right? They mentioned here Teledoc. We talked about Teledoc. They had this big public IPO, right? Where they, they had a stock high early in, in 2021, really high stock of close to $300 per share. And now it's down to $89 per share. And others like Amwell went from thirty-five in February to now around five dollars per share. It's just crazy. Even Zoom is down. Why is that happening, Reid?
0: Well, I, I don't think things have kept up with the pace. It's like that that Gardner hype cycle that we've talked about. You know, it had, we had that inflection point, which in this case was COVID, and, and demand spiked. You know, there was something that happened, so everything went through the roof. And now everything careened down into the trough of disillusionment. I think is what they call it. <laughs> yes. And, and now we're coming back out to what practically is the use case. Now we're looking at the funding for healthcare startups. While exploding, it's not necessarily focused on on telehealth. You know, they're talking here about the funding reached. I mean, almost a hundred billion dollars in the third quarter, which represented twenty two percent of the capital that was raised. The entire year and much of that is going into like biotech companies and as they put it, newfangled drug development. That's not all that different than what we're seeing, right? I mean, we went from like screenings to how to deal with COVID to vaccine and trying to get people to take the vaccine.
2: Our focus evolves, I guess, is my point, right? yeah i mean it's today every everything you hear right in terms of new developments in in the healthcare industry it's been around covid treatment options and now they're also talking about extending it to other types of disease states right i it's interesting i didn't even think about that but we were talking about telehealth and now what we're talking about is biopharmaceutical stuff is that all where all the money is going to
0: they're saying you know Everything's coming back to earth because early on it's pretty obvious when you say it out loud. But we were at home, like you had to do it online, like that was your only option. And that's not really the case now. There's an interesting McKinsey study that talks about you know the use of telehealth and you know and that kind of thing. You know, where care was largely happening online, you know, back in April of 2020. Now they say only you know 13 to 17 percent of care happens online. And there's a, a really good quote in here by Chrissy Farr, who uh, previously wrote for Fast Company uh, and is a venture capitalist now. She says that the bigger macro trends uh, here is that telehealth is starting to see some declines from the peak during the pandemic, where we didn't have much other choice than to see our providers virtually, where we don't see those declines, however, uh, at least not, not as much, is in the behavioral health space. And that's why they'll continue to see, and what she's seeing is record-setting funding moving into that sector. She also talks about that there's a lot of interest in specialized demographics, you know, such as like LGBTQ patients and things like that.
2: You know, interestingly enough, I have a, a few neighbors in in my neighborhood that are psychiatrists, and they are they spend a lot of time in doing online therapy. So it totally makes sense. That's kind of their new home, right? They don't have clinics anymore. They're doing it all from home. I have to say, you know, right now during the Omicron phase, which all hospitals are facing, I think there's going to be a, a another swing towards using telehealth, but certainly it seems like there's more of a long-term play in the behavioral health space for sure.
0: And they mentioned this in here about this technology is getting more mature. People are going to learn how to optimize it and really what the long-term impact of it of it is, you know, where to deploy it and, you know, that, that kind of thing. So they hit on a couple of other things in this article. One, certainly uh, reimbursement, you know, early on in the pandemic, it was kind of like a like a waiver, you know, it was like, listen, just do whatever and, it, and, it, and it's fine, you know. But now we're seeing they mentioned in here that about 40% of primary clinicians say that they will not be able to support telemedicine if CMS goes back to the pre-pandemic rules and stops reimbursing for phone visits and the virtual, uh, like uh, the video visits and things like that. And that's, uh, again, a a study that came out from the Primary Care Collaborative. And
2: anyway, you'll see all this in the article if you go back and read it. But that means then things are kind of shifting now, right? Because I think pharmaceutical, there's always been a space there for investments. This article then goes on to kind of Pinpoint a new trend that's coming out of this, right?
0: First time I've heard the term "on the ground." Maybe let's keep that in mind for next year's end of year show. Okay, like ter- term of the year or whatever mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. something, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we've talked about brick and mortar a lot, but they're talking about on the ground. And when I first saw, it, I thought, "Well, what, what in the world does that mean?" They say that smart companies are recognizing that telehealth is just a, a piece of the pie. And so you're starting to see this movement back into like the retail health clinics, maybe not back into, but certainly into uh, the retail health clinics. Mm -hmm. You know, they they give a couple of examples, Carbon Health and Amazon and others. But that clinical trial research, you see people that are thinking about ways to use spaces like, uh, like parking lots. Interesting. So on the ground. So again, it may not be a permanent location. It may just be like, it didn't say this in here, so don't, don't use this against them, my words against them. But it, it's almost like a hybrid. You know, you think about the virtual care piece and you think about like a parking lot. Well, when I order from Chick-fil-A, like I haven't gone into a Chick-fil-A in forever. But I'm using their app. I'm using this virtual environment, so to speak, to order everything. And then I barely roll my window down to give them my name and then get my food and leave, you know, kind of a thing, right? So the way that I've interacted with them has changed. I don't go inside anymore. I really don't talk to anybody outside anymore. I don't pay through the window. You know, I think that's where a lot of this is kind of coming from as people are looking at different ways to deliver care that maybe... Or somewhere in between the virtual and the in-person. I I don't know.
2: Again, I'm kind of just making this up as I go. But The article kind of ends with suggesting this analogy. I guess it's Alex Morgan, right, who said this, right? Digitally delivered care is analogous to retail on the internet. It levels the playing field so individuals can get access to the best care for them. I guess what they're saying here is that it's not like telehealth is going away, It's just kind of normalizing, right?
0: Yeah, and she kind of finishes off that statement with, you know, now healthcare companies have to figure out how to use the tools they have to create the ultimate patient experience, much like Amazon did in e-commerce. And so she says that telehealth is not a bust. It's just in its infancy. I think it's very much that Gartner hype cycle, right? Like we got a we got a lot of people in there real fast, probably wasn't ready for that. And now we've got to figure out how to optimize and really use that to meet the consumer demand and the expectations and deliver on that that value and that promise
2: around experience. Interesting. Well, let's do this read. Let's take a pause here. And when we come back, I want to dig into an article that I found about telemedicine. Some clinical findings around how telemedicine care is being delivered as equated to in-person care. And we'll do that right after this pause. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front-row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. So, Reid, before the break, we were talking about, I guess the article was called, The Telehealth Bubble Being Burst. One of the things that was was interesting about that, it kind of led me to think about, well, is telemedicine as a practice – As good as like other types of care, that in-person care, which led me to find this article that it's called uh, telemedicine is as good as in-person for many health conditions. Uh There was a a recently reported research done by the Annals of Internal Medicine. And boy, doesn't that sound like a place that you want to be, like the Annals of Internal Medicine? Oh, yes. Where they were looking at how replacing office visits with video checkups and how the impact that is on a variety of different patients being treated for conditions like diabetes, respiratory illness, chronic pain, et cetera. This research that was kind of led by uh, RTI International, which is a nonprofit research institute in North Carolina, the overall outcome that they found is that in general, and this is a quote, the evidence shows that using video teleconferencing in healthcare results in outcomes that are just as good as, or in some cases better than in-person care
0: does everybody agree to this you know i wonder is this like what was the study that came out that said that google ai or something was as good as detecting breast cancer or something like that as like a radiologist or whatever of which i've never had a radiologist agree that that's correct you know i think some of this the devils are in the details a little bit so it talks in you know what is it diabetes the chronic pain, heart problem, you know, something that you have to, I guess, monitor on an ongoing basis. And maybe that's the key word. Maybe it's kind of like at home monitoring or patient monitoring, remote patient monitoring or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I can
2: see how that would be the case. Now, of course, when this study came out, you know, experts across the industry, wait, said, hold on a second. That doesn't jive for every instance. So for example, someone from Lenox Hill Hospital in New York City, indicated that telemedicine is a very limited form of assessing a patient. It's good for a follow-up visit. Let's say you're following a diabetic. You could take their blood sugars and they could report back. You can manage things, et cetera. But this Dr. Len Horovitz said he can't imagine taking care of a patient virtually as a first visit and keeping that patient as an internist without a complete examination in person. If you're
0: starting out with a physician, is very different than, hey, we need to see you one more time before we release you from care. And it's just like, a, so how are you feeling? I feel fine. Okay, great. You know, let us know if you, you know, right. like we, we could have done this via text message, you know, kind of a thing, you know, much less than not doing it in person. I think that makes sense. Certainly. I think there's, there's very
2: logical use cases for it. The article goes on to say, right, that COVID obviously has co- contributed to the use of video teleconferencing. In fact, there was a study done in 2020 that found that 22% of patients and four out of five doctors had conducted a video health exam. That's quite a bit, right? That was a big escalation and it kept going throughout the pandemic and it may be tapering a little bit now, but you know, they looked at 20 clinical trials and tested telemedicine's ability to to be either replaced or enhance the usual care a patient would receive through regular office visits, and it found that, that telemedicine provided as good of care as in-person, and sometimes even better. They noted that the clinical trials included in the study, though, didn't evaluate telemedicine's effectiveness for diagnosing new illnesses or preventative care. That's the nuance here, I think, right? Hmm. Preventative care. That's interesting. Again, Horvitz, who we quoted earlier, says, you really can't examine a patient that well through telemedicine. And he cited COVID as an example. If someone thinks they're exposed, you can't really tell how much of it is symptoms or how much of it is sort of that heightened awareness. That concern that people may have, like, oh my God, this cold, is it COVID? That sort of thing. There's no pulse oximeter. There's no thermometer. There's not enough equipment around to give you the data that you that you need to do to do those kinds of assessments for new diagnoses.
0: Or when your kid holds the thermometer next to the light bulb.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you
0: don't know, you're like, wow, 116 degrees. I mean, he is really sick.
2: Really, though, what the study is really focusing on is people with chronic conditions, diabetes, high blood pressure, those regular checkups, it makes it more convenient than that office visit, and that patients are more likely to have equipment that has that information that doctors need to kind of keep track of those conditions. And a lot of those patients are predisposed to be tracking. I'm a diabetic, right? I track my blood sugar all the time. If a doctor would ask me, what's your blood sugar like over the last seven days, I have a machine that tells me that.
0: What we're getting at there, what you're hitting on, I think, or they're talking about is, is this idea of relationships. Again, if it's a chronic or a repetitive thing that's on a frequency you're getting to know somebody and you can probably do more with less, meaning you don't have to be, you know, sitting there side by side, right? Like you can get on, you, you learn these folks, you have a relationship. You, you, and a lot of times because it's a chronic illness, there's some technology involved. Like you're saying, you know, you, you can pretty quickly just, you know, dial that up and see
2: what the answer is. You know? you know, they go on to say in this study, they say they think the outlook for video teleconferencing or telehealth And where the research really needs to go is to find those areas where it can be transformative in healthcare. There are some potentials, there's some opportunities to drive improvements, but really it's about determining where it fits in the overall care spectrum. I think both your article and this article is kind of aligning towards this concept that telemedicine has a role to play. It's not the panacea for care. It's just we have to now start to figure out what does that new care continuum look like?
0: Very simply, it's just it can't be everything for everything, right? That's basically what we're saying here. There's definitely a use case, but it's not going to replace the healthcare system as we know it.
2: It won't as much as we want it to. And I know you and I don't like to go wait in waiting rooms and we don't like to talk to people on, on the phone that much. We, it's so much easier to pull up our, you know, do a FaceTime with our doctor. If we can, it's not going to completely replace that care setting. And so care has to be a little bit of virtual, a little bit of on the ground, you know, using that new term that you came up with. And ultimately it has to be aligned to what's right for the right patient. Right? There's not one way to solve this problem, which kind of leads me to the interview. I had the pleasure to sit down with Colin Hung. You know Colin Hung, right? Reed from HITMC.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and you know we've we've known Colin. He, and of course, he's been a supporter of the show for a long time. You know, back when we used to talk about virtual versus in person, when we used to in person find ourselves at conferences, <laughs> he was one of those mainstays certainly, and uh, he's done a lot for the industry certainly
2: over the years. He certainly has. He's also a podcaster. We talk about that in in the show here, and uh, he's he also um, moderates a regular Twitter chat, a, the HC Leader Twitter chat. You know, he's very active in the industry. I'm surprised we haven't had him on the show before, but he and I had a chance to sit down and talked about a recent study around remote patient monitoring another telemedicine solution and it's not the technology that makes it successful it's actually how you integrate that technology into patient experience into the overall experience and design the technology around that experience it was a really great interview we're going to go to it right after this break and then you and i will be back to wrap up the show Welcome back to the Ask the Expert segment of the podcast, and today I am delighted to have on the show someone that is very well known in our industry, someone that I've talked to a number of times before and have seen at conferences, and this is yet the first time you're on the show. Colin Hung, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Chris. Yeah, it's been a while, but uh, I'm glad we're here now. I am glad too. And you know, I have to say that given your background and, and all the information that you have, this is will be the first of many times that you'll be on. Before we get started in, into our conversation today, some people listening in may not know who you are and learning a little of your background and your expertise. Would you mind sharing a little bit of your yourself with our audience? Sure. Yeah. So my name is Colin Hung. I am
1: an editor at Healthcare IT Today, which is a publication that covers healthcare IT topics. I'm also the healthcare advisor at a local uh, entrepreneur innovation hub here in my uh, home city of Toronto in Markham. Uh, It's called Venture Lab. So I help advise entrepreneurs uh, in in the health tech and digital health space. And I'm also a community manager for HCLDR, which is the uh, Twitter community that we run still, 10 years strong, and HITMC, which is the healthcare marketing community that we
2: also run. So all those many hats. You're very prolific in in our space. And Reed and I have a joke that whenever we refer to an article from various different places, we, we say our friends at Fast Company or our friends at wherever. We can really say now that we have friends at healthcare IT. You got it. Well, Colin, you and I had a chance to kind of catch up before this interview, and we had an interesting conversation, which kind of spurred today's conversation that we're going to have on the show, and that was around the use of healthcare technology, and and more specifically, things like RPM and telemedicine in the healthcare setting. And one thing that kind of jumped out, and I think this is a great way to kind of maybe characterize what you and I are going to chat about, is that it's really not about the technology. It's much more than that. And I think that that's something that uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to explore with you over the next couple of minutes.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, and you're absolutely right. Like what we were talking about is you know, the technology is certainly needed, but just throwing the technology into a program or throwing the technology at the patients or the conditions just won't work. I mean, you need to really think about the workflow impact, uh, the impact uh, in terms of the disruption it's going to cause to the patient's lives, how to integrate that technology into the patient's lives, all of that is necessary to make those kinds of programs successful.
2: I think many of us do know that when we look at some kind of health IT solution or you know digital health technology or what have you, it's very important to understand kind of where it fits within the context of that care setting. And I know Reed and I have been talking about that through the rest of the show here. You mentioned that there's a study about remote patient monitoring that actually kind of exemplifies this.
1: This was a, um, actually a randomized controlled trial that was conducted by Dr. Michael McGillian and Dr. PJ Devereaux of the Population Health Research Institute here at McMaster University um, in Hamilton, Ontario. Uh, their study results were actually published in the British Medical Journal. And what they found was across eight acute care hospitals here in Canada, they did a study of remote patient monitoring. And so they gave remote patient monitoring uh, technology to patients post-surgery, and they studied the difference between those that did get that kind of technology versus ones that didn't. And the ones that that were part of the RPM program were 5.3% less likely to be readmitted 13.9% less likely to report pain seven days after surgery and almost 25% safer because they were able to detect medication errors sooner uh, because of the RPM program. So these are real tangible patient outcome benefits Mm -hmm. that resulted from this from RPM.
2: Yeah. And so that if someone would read that, uh, you know, a clinician or, or someone in, within a health system might read that and say, okay, well, that's great. Then we're just going to roll out RPM and that's going to solve this problem. It's going to improve patient outcomes. But I suspect that there's a little bit more nuance than just the technology itself leading to those good outcomes. Is that fair? You're
1: absolutely right. And and uh, when I interviewed uh, the two good doctors, Dr. Devereaux and Dr. McGillian on this, that right away, that's what they pointed out was that the technology was necessary, but it was actually the program around it, the workflow around the technology that made the biggest difference. So for example, for the two weeks immediately following surgery, every day there would be a nurse who would jump on a telehealth call. With the patient to review the data that the RPM technology was collecting, and they would review like is anything out of whack? Is there any? Is everything look normal? They would answer questions, but most importantly is on a set intervals on day one, day eight, day fifteen. They would review the medication that the patient was taking to ensure a that they were taking it, but also to ensure that it was the right dose and it wasn't conflicting with something else that they were taking. And that process was part of the reason why they're much safer because they were able to find these contradicting prescriptions or maybe the wrong dose had had been given.
2: They found all these things much earlier on. So that sounds like a very analog process that's kind of an alignment with a very much a digital health solution. to me, that kind of speaks to the fact that it's like we said, right? It's not just the technology. That's sort of a misconception that people may have about sort of these digital health solutions, including RPM, is that it's not just about making it available. It's about ensuring that you're developing all the the systems and processes all around that. What other things related to this did you find?
1: Well, they also found that certainly at the beginning, um, when you first gave the technology to the patient, there was a learning curve for the patient to figure out how to work the technology. So there there has to be an acknowledgement that you're going to be in the tech support business. And and that doesn't mean, you know, you have to, you know, you're not Best Buy, but you do have to make the instructions very clear on how to how is that data going to go from the patient's network over to the hospital? How do they work this into their daily routine? What what measurements you want them to take and how often? These all have to be made very clear to the patient, otherwise You won't get the data you need to make the analysis and have the kind of visit that you want with them. So there is a lot of upfront work that had to go into place, but the good news was they found that age and technology savviness didn't make a difference. What they said was when you were able to spend the five to 10 minutes just educating them on what to do, people were fine. They were like, okay, cool. I I understand that this technology is going to help me. It's going to help my pain. It's going to help with my post-surgery recovery. I'm in. Uh, even though I might not know how to even turn on a TV, I'm in. And they took the time to learn it. So they said that technology savviness was actually not a barrier that, that people thought it was going to be.
2: That's really interesting. You know, we hear a lot about entrance into the digital health space. And the advantages they have around developing solutions that are very easy to use, right? I, I often hear these new solutions, we have to be wary of them because they actually totally understand user experience design, right? They are even equivalent, make it equivalent to like an iPhone or an iPad. We're making it that easy for people to accept that technology. But what I'm hearing here from this, from one of the what you just said, though, is that it's really not about, I, I guess that does help, but that's not the only thing. You can actually teach people to use various different type of digital health solutions. Is, is that right?
1: I think the message here is that when there is sufficient motivation, you know, like your own personal health, your recovery from a surgery, all of a sudden people who you might have thought might not be that well adapted to new technology suddenly become more than happy to learn how to use it. Now that that also speaks to the technology that this study included it was actually from a company called Cloud DX, and you know their technology is very very easy to use. They chose a partner that had invested to make the technology very simple, and I think that's also a consideration for hospitals as they're thinking about rolling out these programs. Not all technologies created the same. You have to find one that you know is easy enough to use for your. Uh, patients, but also your clinicians, right, on the other side. So th- that together helped make that barrier a lot lower, right, than if you had a very difficult uh, piece of software or piece of hardware to use.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I can actually see this kind of applying to a variety of different digital solutions that are out there. Reid and I have talked about, let's say, online appointment scheduling and other things, right? You want to develop those solutions to make them easier for people to access them. But you also have to make it meaningful, almost like adding that element of user experience design into your overall solution but user experience design sounds like a technology thing right i think that's used often in tech companies what we're talking about here though is actually designing real life ways to get them to adopt and accept these these platforms well maybe accept is not the right word use these platforms
1: well and and you're absolutely right chris like i think when we see the word user experience we mean to think software or technology but really, it's it's more than that, right? It's overall patient experience, overall clinician experience. When users, there are lots of different users of a technology deployed in healthcare. And so you need to think about all aspects of that. Like what is the clinician experience like receiving all this data? You can't just make this really, really easy for patients. You also have to look at how to make this easy for your staff, right? And how are they going to use it? So All of that has to be considered. And when you do it well, it then becomes almost second nature. People are like, wow, this really does work. Look at the difference it's making for my patients. Look at the difference this was making for the nurses. Actually, this is easier for everybody. And that's when this really becomes ingrained, right? And it's
2: not going to be taken away and it's not going to be a burden on somebody. They don't see it as extra work. And that also kind of speaks to something else that I know. I'm a technology guy, right? And I understand user experience design from a technology perspective. But overall, when we talk about experience, any kind of experience, patient experience or customer experience or user experience, ultimately it's about utility. Utility is kind of the driving force behind this. And one thing I know in a care setting, if you can't provide utility with your technology solution it's not going to be adopted by the users at all so it sounds to me like what they're doing the the nurses that educate the patients beforehand and then kind of follow up with them afterwards they're ongoingly providing utility throughout the entire care experience as it relates to the technology
1: yeah i mean certainly i don't think the nurses were asked to do the tech support side but yes they were <laughs> they were they were there obviously during those telehealth visits calls to answer any questions or you know if there was something they maybe had forgotten on when or how to take the measurement they were certainly there to do that and i think that was also something key to mention as part of the workflow change they actually had dedicated nurses for this program so these weren't nurses who were also taking care of patients on a ward or in, a, in the in the hospital they were just dedicated to the rpm because there was enough patients for that and what they found was job satisfaction went up. And you can imagine, this wasn't part of the study, but you can imagine that given today's um, challenges around staffing and burnout and all those other things that that happen, this might be a great way to keep some nurses who might not have stayed by giving them the opportunity to go, wow, you you can help a lot of patients uh, by just you know, doing these telehealth visits and looking at the data that's coming back from the RPM system and just identifying and triaging any potential issues. It's a much, I won't say calmer environment, but it's different. And you're still doing the job. You still need those skills, but it's not that you're running around on the floor, right? So this might be a great way to kind of keep some nurses who might've been on the
2: edge, um, that right there makes so much sense. And I know that call centers, access centers at health systems, et cetera, they, there's a certain, uh, a certain level of them that actually are like nurses and they're managed for nurse triaging, answering questions, things like that. I would assume that with good, successful RPM solutions and other telesolutions, there are dedicated staff that are, are supporting these types of online technologies. But to me, in my mind, I think about if I was a nurse or even a physician, right? That. They are typically trained in, you know, in their education around being a nurse or doing care that it's all done face to face. It sounds to me, Lau, like we're developing ways to have hybrid ways to deliver care, and the nurses and the and the the clinicians that are kind of monitoring these systems have to now learn both analog and digital ways to deliver care.
1: Yeah, I I definitely think so. I, I don't think you know, anybody who is part of this study or anybody that's rolling out telehealth technologies or remote patient monitoring technologies learn this in school, right? Like there's not a course for RPM in schools yet. But I think the great thing about the technology is it's not trying to replace everything. Like RPM is not going to replace, like if you're in pain and in severe pain, like you need to go to the ED, go to the ED. Like RPM is not going to help you. But it's for those, the majority of patients who are, you know what, I'm I'm okay. I'm feeling all right. But it's just helped to have that little reassurance to go, yep, yeah, my recovery is progressing normally. And therefore, I'm not going to come into the ED just because I, I have experiencing some little discomfort. Not to say the patients are doing this, but having and knowing that that nurse is right there, I can just dial them up or send them a message through the RPM systems. It, that comfort level, you know, that, there's something to be said about that. And, and you're right. We're all having to navigate this uh, together. Again, I think that's that's one of the hallmarks. In again, not this wasn't part of the study, but just sort of from my own experiences, I think this is one of the things that get gets overlooked, and that is the experience that you you have to train your own people to use these technologies properly. Right, you just can't throw this at them and go here, figure this out. And, and so, having the dedicated nurses as opposed to portioning off a day of a nurse's regular day to go and do some telehealth stuff no no no. these were dedicated telehealth nurses at least for that day or for that for the entire program that seemed to be the magic formula so you really have to rethink a lot of things when it comes to technology but there are things that i think make sense right these aren't like groundbreaking workflow changes right like these are just like oh okay this makes sense let's just do this and look everyone everyone's happy with it
2: Right, right. And I think about, you know, like in the early days when, or in the early days, probably before you're in my time, when they started rolling out EMRs and health systems and things like that, there was a big resistance. I would still say there is some resistance to these technologies because they change your workflows, they change your care workflows and your pathways and things like that. And so that's a little bit different. You have to learn to adapt. But now they're pretty much commonplace. People, that are practicing care understand that, yes, we're going to have an EMR, that we're going to track the patient's care where they're inpatient, et cetera. It sounds to me like as, you know, the more and more of this adoption, post-pandemic adoption of RPM, telemedicine, and other kinds of digital health solutions within a care setting, this is going to become more and more commonplace, so to speak. And it's going to be met with a little bit less of this, like, wow, this is a new strange thing.
1: I I agree with you but I also think we're going to go through a little bit of a of a of a downward slope like I think we've seen sort of telehealth get rapidly adopted because of all the issues around covid and patients not being able to come in and I think we saw the plateau uh meaning you know we're not seeing more adoption and right now and I think we're going to see a drop off because I think people are realizing as much as these technologies are great, they don't really work in all situations, or they may not have the impact that people want to see in all situations. I certainly think, for example, that telehealth has made a huge difference in the behavioral health space and the mental health space. We've seen that that technology works extremely well. It's also great in terms of the patients, in terms of stigma, they don't have to go to a specific you know, floor where, oh, if you're going to that floor, you can see the behavioral health people, right? Being able to do it through telehealth is amazing for that. Um, and not let alone like helping people in, remotes, in remote settings. But we're also seeing that, you know, telehealth and remote patient monitoring makes a huge difference in the surgical area, but that may not make as much difference in other areas of the hospital. So I think we are going to see a decline as people figure out, I'm getting more bang for my buck with these new technologies here. I, I'm seeing the, the willingness of the staff to adopt it in these areas. In these other areas, staff may be struggling because they're not seeing the benefit. And the patients may not be seeing the benefit of these technologies. So I think we are going to see a little bit of a decline, unfortunately, in the use of telehealth. But I don't think it's going away. To your point, I do think it's going to become ingrained. It's just going to become naturally part of the process down the road.
2: Yeah, just another tool to use, right? It's like, uh, is this appropriate for these types of patients as opposed to these type of patients? You know, myself, I'm a type one diabetic. I pretty much have my glucometer is my remote patient monitoring device. If you think about it, right. Um, Because I share the results with my doctor with check-ins and things like that. But I don't think of it that way. I think of it now as just like something that I use day to day, to part of manage my care and something that I can now share with my physician through the portal, I could share my glucose result. But for others, I think that it would it doesn't make sense to have something like that. If you're not dealing with a chronic care condition or something that needs regular checkup, your digital health solution might be a little bit different.
1: I think the the pandemic forced the use of telehealth because there was no other way to see patients. Now that we're back Somewhat to semblance of normalcy, hopefully soon. You know, people are now like more willing to come back in. I I do think that there are some settings where there was just no replacement for being in person, and telehealth was the only thing because there was nothing else. I think those use cases will go away. But you know, in this post-surgery recovery and in other such situations, you know, where we're actually seeing significant impacts on patient outcomes, that's where I think the technology is definitely going to be very sticky. Because the results are undeniable, right? Like we're starting to see the studies come through around like the impacts on safety, like this one study did and the impact on pain and the impact on readmissions, who wouldn't want these kinds of results, right? And all of it took was a couple of telehealth
2: visits and some remote patient monitoring technology why not why not right exactly so i it would be remiss of me not to ask you about the larger health it space cuz you have your pulse on that too how are you seeing like the technology vendors kind of responding to these new ways that we're adapting to digital health solutions telemedicine in this p- post pandemic i'm not sure we could say that quite yet but this post pandemic phase of of where we're at
1: well, definitely one of the one of the movements uh, that the pandemic has accelerated is this whole concept of care at home. Whether you're making, you know, whether you made a patient portal or your know, telehealth solution, remote patient monitoring technologies, any technology that helps a patient stay at home or receive care at home is definitely very hot. You know, as we emerge out of the pandemic, that will continue to be the case for a lot of really good reasons. A, I think people realize, I really don't want to go to the hospital, (laughs) right? Especially in the pandemic. B, I think people are realizing, oh, actually recovery times are better when you're at your own setting and you're at home. Costs are actually lower uh, in in some cases. And so I think there's going to be this continual movement towards, okay, what else can we do to help patients receive care at home? To me, that's a sort of a macro trend that's going to last over the next five, 10 years, but it was accelerated
2: drastically by uh, the COVID pandemic. We're recording this right in the middle of the Consumer Electronics Show. You know, 2022. There is this convergence from the consumeristic side of this, of these digital health solutions as well. You can walk through the aisles of Best Buy, and they have two, three aisles of at-home health solutions.
1: It's a big movement, and I think it's it's a great one, right? Because you know, given the choice, of course, I would much rather be at home than than in a in a you know hospital bed in a hospital. And finally, the broadband and the technologies have caught up, right? The sensors have caught up to where these devices are now affordable right? Whereas before you had to get them on loan from the hospital, right? no one no one could afford a holter. So yep. you got one from the hospital and you used it, and then you gave it back, right? Now you can go to Best Buy and get something that can do a six lead or eight lead or twelve lead thing for 50 bucks, right? right? <laughs> this convergence of the cost, the the low cost of sensors, the ability to actually have the data transmitted to someone who's actually gonna do something with it. These are all things that are gonna make care at home a, a more of a reality. And I think that's a very exciting spot in healthcare. And as you just mentioned, now we're seeing entrance from traditional consumer spaces. We're seeing uh, companies like uh, Sony and and uh, Samsung get into this space. Where you know rumors are floating around, like IKEA might be getting into this sort of home. Health oh my space. gosh! Wow. You know when when those kinds of companies you're hearing rumors around. I mean, and already we know Best Buy's in this space, right? They're becoming a retailer for this stuff. I mean, clearly this is a a
2: broader movement, right? When consumer uh, companies are getting involved. Colin, this is such such a great conversation that we've been having. I can see why we got to have you back on over and over again. There's so many topics that we could talk about. Before we uh, end today's conversation, I would love for you to share some ways that people can reach out to you, find, find out more about you online, and also tell them a little bit about your podcast.
1: Probably the best way to stay in connection with me would be on Twitter. My handle is at Colin, C-O-L-I-N, underscore Hung, H-U-N-G. I'm always there. I'm a little bit of addicted to Twitter. I tweet a lot, so be warned, especially when I go to conferences. But that's probably the best place you can go. You can also check out healthcareittoday.com, which is where I do a lot of my writing and, and publishing of, of stories. In terms of of uh, the podcast, yeah, so we have a podcast that we run as part of Healthcare IT Today, where you know, as part of my job, I get the uh, opportunity to interview a lot of other thought leaders and business leaders in the health IT space and we published those as part of our podcast series. So, uh, when you go out to healthcareittoday.com, there's a section you can go to to go listen to our podcast.
2: Well, we'll definitely put links to all of that in the show notes. So, people that are listening in, definitely encourage you to follow Colin on Twitter, go go to his website bookmark it and uh, listen to his podcast. It's really really good stuff. So, Colin, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a great conversation and like I said, we have to have you back on very soon.
1: Well, it's been an honor. Thank you so much for having me today.
0: All right. Special thanks to Colin for coming on the show. Uh, it was great to finally uh, finally get him down, the elusive <laughs> Colin Hung. But no, I appreciate his time and expertise. And This is a great topic and timely, very interesting as we, we start off the new year and start thinking about innovation and, and what's next in our space. All right, so coming up, we've got uh, lots of conferences. So, I, what I would suggest is if you make your way over the website and sign up for the TPS report, we mentioned that early in the show, a few articles to start your week. Uh, email comes out every Monday. We'll start linking the upcoming conferences down at the bottom, call for presenters, all that kind of fun stuff. So, you kind of know what's coming and go start marking your calendars. You'll know certainly when uh, those tickets go on sale. You don't want to be want to be left out. Uh, hopefully, we'll be able to make it some this year. We'll see how the uh, year progresses. Chris and I are looking forward to seeing everybody and maybe doing a little talking at, uh,
2: at <laughs> <one of these. laughs> and recording shows too while we're there. And
0: recording shows, yeah. A little interviewing, a little talking, a little recording. So it should be fun. It should be fun. So uh, so check that out. And again. Touchpoint.health is the website, rate, review, subscribe, all that kind of fun stuff. Let's do a couple of recommendations where we wrap up for the day.
2: Reid, I'm going to recommend a website that I go to every now and then. I'm not sure if you've heard of it before. You might have. Boingboing.net. Have you heard of this? Yeah. What is that? Why do I know that? Boingboing is like a blog content curating company. They call it a directory of mostly wonderful things. (laughs) <laughs> and basically what it is, it's a it's a site that aggregates different types of content, they create their own content too, but it aggregates it from a variety of different places and some of it is technology related which is why I started to go there some of it is related to pop culture and a variety of different things. It's just a really interesting site, if you want to ever go out and kind of tired of the regular news sites, you know, Google News is kind of getting you down, you don't want to look at the news today, maybe you just want to find some interesting unique stuff to talk about who knows um i go here sometimes to find ideas for our our cold opens in our shows go to Boingboing.net. yes it's a net website but oh boy yeah i know let me share with you some of the articles that they're aggregating today the first one is a, a time lapse of a wee little pumpkin seed turning into a 1300 pound pumpkin Wow, some guy set up Very a webcam cool. and, and and watched the pumpkin grow. Another article was about here's what you probably miss in the final issue of the Watchmen comic book. Or today's toys have nothing on the ones in this 1960s Mattel commercial. <laughs> nice. Like all over the place, lots of different things. Best news bloopers of 2021. The oldest aquarium fish in the world is at least 90. And then you know it gets into other things too, right? Um, you know there there is some news kind of in, intertwined in this. But I, I would say in general, it's just a really fun light website to go to to get articles about a variety of different things. Particularly if you're just like, ah, just you know, I'm in the mood to kind of scroll articles, but not doom scroll through news articles. This is a place where you can go. Nice. BoingBoing.net. That's my recommendation.
0: I like it. I'll be checking it out here shortly. All right, I'm going to recommend a TV show, which I believe you may have recommended here on the podcast. But I, for I mean, we're six years in. I, I don't even know anymore, so um, it's fine. I'm going to recommend Secession. Uh, it's an HBO. You can watch it on HBO Max. There are. Mm, what is there? Three seasons, maybe at this point, mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're we're still in season one, so don't spoil anything for me. Kind of a fun TV show, dark comedy. Dark comedy?
2: That yes, that right, yes. But
0: it's a little more serious than probably your thinking when you think dark comedy. But it's good. It's, it's well done, well written. Really interesting show about a media company owned by a family and all the subsequent drama that comes of that uh, between
2: the uh, the dad and the kids, if you will. So, oh, man. Anyway, good stuff. That show is is one where you, you watch it and you hate them, but you have to watch it because it's so funny. Mm -hmm. Oh, Reed. I love that show. I'm glad you recommended it. Succession. Yeah. That is a great recommendation. Don't watch it with your kids.
0: No, 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 no. It's not, not appropriate really for anyone, but, um,
2: (laughs) but we still recommend it. (laughs) Yeah. Just make sure you're an adult. So anyway, Uh,
0: well, there you go. Great recommendations. Good, good episode. uh, As we are well into the new year. But thanks again for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Rate, review, subscribe, all that kind of fun stuff. We'd love to hear from you. Twitter, LinkedIn, easiest way to do that. Certainly you can track us down on email and all that kind of fun stuff. Uh, Subscribe to the TPS report and uh, would love for you to let us know how we're doing. Mm -hmm. Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week.